Hello and welcome back to the second series of the Smart Life podcast. Now we've got a great episode for you today talking all about how smart home technology and IoT technology can be used to help care in the community, particularly in a post-COVID-19 world and the lessons that we've learned so far. Now, of course, we had a great episode last week talking all about how we can use this technology to get to carbon zero. And of course, we love hearing your feedback. So if you've got any questions or you just want to let us know your thoughts, then make sure you email us at hello at beaconagency.co.uk. So without further ado, here's episode two. And welcome to episode two of the second series of the Smart Life podcast, exploring the latest in smart home technology and IoT. This podcast is created in conjunction with the Smart Homes and Buildings Association and is produced by Beacon Agency. I'm Jess Hadley. And I'm Thomas Joy. And in today's episode, we're going to be exploring how we can use this technology to help improve how we care for the community around us. Since the recent COVID-19 outbreak, it's never been more important to help and support the community around us. And living through a pandemic has thrown up some extra challenges we all need to overcome. Here to talk to us around how we might tackle these issues are Caroline Lawrenson, Managing Director of TL Tech Smart Home Solutions, who design, install and maintain smart home systems using affordable hardware combined with clever computing know-how to integrate the functions you need in the home together. Uh, They aim to make smart home technology accessible to all, regardless of age, ability or financial status. Uh, They recently launched their Smart Meets Kind movement, which looks to boost people's confidence with smart home technology and bring about real improvements in well-being and social connections. Also joining us is Chris Gamble, Director of Customise Limited, who is one of the most innovative smart home installation businesses in the UK. Since 2011, they have pioneered a sensibly priced approach to technology installation through a wide range of work in period homes, new construction and renovations. He's also a fellow podcaster and hosts the Digital Ramble with his co-host JJ, talking about all things smart home. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. So we're going to kick off with our first Big topic question. From your perspective, what role does smart technology have to play in improving communities and the lives of people living in them? Caroline, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is massive. I think one of our big messages is about redefining the role of the smart home. Um, There's a huge opportunity to showcase what it can offer to support people and enhance well-being. And we believe that very passionately. Um, you know, as you said in the introduction, we think that smart homes and their benefits should be accessible to all. We know that more and more people are living alone, and that is something that can be difficult for people. And having the means of accessing technology can really enhance people's lives. And and that's firmly what we believe and what we've been trying to do especially lately where the you know the situation of of being isolated has has exacerbated and do you find that there are a lot of barriers to this tech adoption in those types of uh, uh, groups within our community there's the educational piece um, and then also the kind of financial piece as well so I think people have this perception that technology is this all encompassing solution and that you know, you, you give someone a magic box and it will change their life, but it's it's not actually like that. And, you, you know, each person's individual and they have their, you know, they have their own free will to make their own choices about what's going to work best for them. That can be difficult to navigate when you don't really know what's out there and what's available. 
So, there, you know, there's inequalities in terms of people's level of education and understanding and then the actual price point of some of this technology that maybe is geared more to people who are um, vulnerable or have different accessibility needs can often be um, inflated. And so that also makes it very difficult for people to, you know, be able to get the advantages of smart homes. You know, you look at smart home, I think it's just one layer of this big technology sponge cake, you know, that's that's being made. And further up the, the, the levels as you go up, there should be some more responsibility taken in terms of infrastructure and, you know, what the, the big service providers are bringing, whether it's gas, electricity, telecommunications. And smart home is way further along in, in the chain. And if, if the infrastructure is not right, then smart homes doesn't really have a chance without good infrastructure. And I think that lets it down and technology professionals like ourselves are always trying to cover and paper over the cracks from, you know, traditional telecoms providers, um, even electricity providers where you've got to look at off-grid solutions. So investment in infrastructure will, will trickle down. The, the benefits will come from investment at a higher level and, and that's not not just in technology but investment in in the schools in the homes and and you know the road networks and transportation you know smart homes just this nice little layer of gadgets and gizmos I, I think there needs to be more focus on a higher level what's what's the the incoming services to buildings what's the the infrastructure for you know the, the councils and businesses and um, schools and police and, and fire departments, what are they being serviced with? Not just, you know, thinking about smart homes being smart light bulbs, a doorbell and a, and a yeah. TV that streams your favourite box set. So this is definitely about integration, isn't it? And it being a whole systems approach. Do you think manufacturers at the moment, you know, even while the industry is calling for, you know, a big focus on both uh, infrastructure and education, do you think the manufacturers are still a little bit too um, insular in their approach and that they are developing these products and then just sort of launching them into the wider world without sort of much thought about how those are going, you know, how they're going to be used or integrated? And also in terms of the education piece, um, launching these products with just a list of features rather than identifying the problems they're looking to solve. Yeah, so that is really fundamental. So as a designer, you're not designing widgets, you know, you're actually looking to address a need. I think, unfortunately, the smart home world can be very focused on the latest gadgets and flashy, you know, things that look lovely, but maybe aren't addressing the real underlying needs. And I think what we find actually with the, with the customers that we work with is that they have um, real ingenuity. You know, they're the ones that suggest to us what, what we could do with the technology. So, I mean, our job actually is more around getting to know that person and understand their life situation. What are their aspirations? Um, what's their family life like? You know, what network do they have around them already that's able to support them? And then how do we use the technology to better integrate that support? So that communication piece. And then, you know, really simple things like some for some people, maybe their their biggest goal is being able to wash themselves 
or you know be able to go and make themselves a cup of tea and actually smart homes you know they can help you do really basic things like opening the curtains you know switching on the kettle and they're things that people take for granted but for certain individuals they can be absolutely transformational and I'm not sure if designers are really thinking about that accessibility piece and and doing that sell themselves short because if you design a product and show people how it can be used then you're opening up much more opportunities in the marketplace you know as a business recently we've we've aligned ourselves more with brands that are consumer focused and and people put that in this category of oh chris you just deal with diy brands you you install stuff that people can do themselves well no, I'm dealing with brands that actually have a consumer focus from the start. They're designed from the consumer backwards. So many custom solutions and custom products are designed to meet the needs and get the feedback from the installation community who want you know, these silly little features that really have no <laughs> other benefit than to aid you know, something that they can show off their programming abilities. I'm interested in like thermostat that learns, not a thermostat that needs program. I'm interested in a, a doorbell that, that improves the longer it's in place. It recognizes faces. I don't need a, a doorbell that I need to configure and address and tell it who to talk to. I want to just enable a feature that, that tells the rest of the system, oh, a new, a new product has arrived at the, in the smart home. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk nicely with them and work with them. No, it doesn't need program. And you know, DIY tech is, is often ridiculed a little bit by the professional industry but when you deal with DIY tech you're dealing with consumer focused tech. Mm. Agreed and it's it's this thing that uh, that we were talking about at CES this year that consumers opinion to smart technology is going to change within the decade and I think really even quicker in the next couple of years it's going to be less about um, connectivity they're going to assume that everything is connected and we're entering the age of the intelligence of things rather than the internet of things and actually there is a perception shift that the industry has to probably do moving from smart home into smart intelligent living Uh, so would you argue that really the products we have now could do some way of getting to that point where it is truly a smart home, where it is learning and being intelligent and, and, and programming itself effectively. You know, you look at the, the, some of the taglines on some of the big brands' marketing efforts and, and you look at somebody like Google with the helpful home. You know, practical tech that's providing things like life safety, you know, climate control, access, security, uh, voice assistant, you know, that they are building their products around real life scenarios. They're also building in artificial intelligence. You know, they're also talking with other best in class products to, to make sure you're having a single voice or single interface experience with your tech. If there's going to be this move into a more smarter, intelligent tech, I think we might also be going into a period of technology upgrades. Things that were built in the last decade are not capable of running the, you know, the, the software and firmware that's got AI, that's got cool features like facial recognition if it's, a, if it's a security device. Caroline, from your perspective, obviously you do a lot in terms of educating uh, the, the people that you work with. Is there times that you find that you're bringing together solutions that, that and educating your sort of customers on how to use them and it wasn't, 
explicitly clear from the brands themselves? You guys had figured that out through using those devices with other customers. Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because um, when COVID-19 hit and we um, stopped doing the home visits because a lot of our customers are vulnerable um, and then we thought to ourselves, well, what can we do that can still help our customers and kind of help, you know, the wider population? And so originally our plan was we'll go online, we will help to signpost people to the right place to go to. Because um, there is a lot of information out there on smart homes. To echo what Chris has been saying about smart home um, integrators, their content tends to be much more focused around, you know, the latest technology and showcasing their capability and like the programming side of things. So it's not really at the level of the consumer step by step. And so we had to then say to ourselves, well, there's a gap here and our customers need this support. And if we create the content and share it online and create this community, the Smart Meets Kind community with the live sessions um, on Facebook, then that's something that we can help to create and fill that gap. So, I mean, the guides, they're, they're really basic. They, they take you through from, you know, going on the Amazon website and deciding that you want to purchase a voice assistant and it takes you right the way through that journey. But if we were learning this, with no prior knowledge, what would we want to know? And then we've obviously been getting feedback as time has been going on about, you know, the things that people are struggling with still. Um, and then that feeds into what we're going to cover in each week of the live tutorials and the guides that we're creating. So it's been it's been quite a journey because we just assumed we'll just signpost, you know, this content's going to be out there already. And we saw, you know, as COVID-19 progressed, a lot more content around, you know, how to do Zoom calls, how to do online shopping, you know, things like that that help people when they're at home, but nothing smart home related and nothing voice assistant related. So hopefully we are providing a service now that people get real value from. Caroline, just to follow up um... <clears throat> On Chris's point about um, a lot of technology that you know might begin to be um, outdated and, and um, with a lot of new technology, especially as we sort of enter a world of you know five G devices and, and things like that, um, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that price is already one of those. Um, barriers to entry for, for a lot of consumers. Um, do, do you think that while manufacturers are looking at producing, you know, more advanced tech, there is also a case of actually keeping around a lot of the legacy tech at a lower price to make sure that actually for those people that don't want, you know, all the bells and whistles, there is a much more accessible entry level version of these products. You don't want to leave those consumers behind. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a danger with technology that it's, um, it quickly becomes obsolete because the new thing comes out um, you know, the lifespan of technology is um, a little bit frightening from an environmental point of view as well. If I'll mm. be honest, you know, a smart light bulb, you know, if that technology becomes outdated, you're remanufacturing something that a traditional light bulb would never have needed to be replaced. So there's an aspect from an environmental point of view, and then also from the consumer's point of view, they don't want to have to keep spending money upgrading equipment. 
And that is something actually that, you know, we've been looking at how, how do we address that? So where we focus our attention, we know that there's a lot of other companies out there that offer sensor solutions. So there are packages that you can put into the home of, of your your loved one and they will help to kind of monitor and alert you if there's any issues Um, and whilst they're good at what they do I think they're not built for the future I would be really upset if someone came to me in 10 years time or 20 years time and and perhaps maybe my health had declined so maybe I've got a degenerative disease or I've got early onset dementia and someone came to me and said see the smart home that you've really enjoyed living in for the last decade we're going to just rip that out and put one of these boxes in that's going to care for you I would feel a little bit disappointed that well why can't the smart home that I've already got care for me because Really, when you look at the hardware, there's difference between the sensors that are used in these specialist packages. Where the magic comes in is, is, is the software. It's important for us to be designing systems that aren't going to be affected by this kind of obsolescence. And that if we can design the hardware so it can be retained and then be thinking about the software layer and what do we do to augment that, I think we could be making it much more affordable for people so they're not having to upgrade the hardware and the software is maybe made more accessible by it being like a subscription service where there's a tier system where they can access various different layers of sophistication around their system. I think that actually leads us quite nicely in terms of that accessibility and making sure that consumers have access to, to the technology or on whether or not as the smart home does become more um, pertinent to the way that we're living our lives, especially with a lot of us living more at home. Um, do we think that there is a responsibility for either local government, uh, potentially housing developers or, or even local advocacy groups within the community um, to sponsor or support um, rollouts of smart technology to, to solve issues that, that consumers face? Yeah, I, I definitely think that there should be investment at, at a local government level. Uh, and, and again, just to repeat, I think that investment should be in infrastructure. I do have a worry that there's going to be a, a technology gap between the, the elite homes, the, the, the higher income households benefiting from all the latest technology from Silicon Valley and the Far East and wherever it's coming from. And the lower priced homes with the lower income are getting less internet speeds, less connectivity for wireless technology like 4G and 5G. Rural areas, again, suffering from poor infrastructure provision and, and that driving of people to the city to get work, connectivity, social life. There needs to be a, an immediate investment, especially when you know the technology is is available, you know, mm. and, it, and it just needs infrastructure like fiber optic or it needs wireless technology rolled out. Housing developers, again, just reserving technology for the, the most elite homes is, is a sin. It shouldn't be happening. There should be a minimum standard for any home, whether that's for television, telephone, energy monitoring of water usage, renewables. The, built, the construction methods used should not be, um, you know, the preserve of the, the luxury homes. There should be community groups and action groups that are raising awareness or should have investment to help communities with technology training. And so that people aren't getting left behind in the way that people were left behind with computers and smartphones. You know, there's still a huge generation of people that, that struggle 
and you know online shopping that you know that Caroline talked about these basics we're we're great at it but we're maybe maybe we're irresponsible that we're not sharing that with even people in our own families yeah. even at a family level we need to be sharing our knowledge as, as the, maybe the, the techier members of our, our family circle when you think about the certain situations that crop up in communities, isolation, social distancing, vulnerable people, particularly at the moment, technology is usually one of the answers, but, and it's one of the answers that is easier to implement than some of the ramifications of not implementing that technology. But we've, like you said, seem to have left some of our uh, society behind in terms of the infrastructure and the education around that. I mean, in Caroline, I guess that's on the front line of, of working in that way. Have you found that to be the case um, where you are? Yeah, there's, there's you know, d- deep-rooted things that will be difficult to change. And it's not like we can just magically put technology in everybody's homes. Mm. Um, I think it's interesting we spoke right at the beginning about essentially about use cases and about how um, people that manufacture smart home devices should they be thinking more about use cases and I think that you know people in power you know in the local governments they should really be thinking more smartly about the technology and how it's going to help them so you know if we have new housing that's being built we should be thinking about putting in smart sensors that will help to maintain air quality and make sure that the homes aren't getting damp, make sure you're maintaining, you know, um, good temperature to, to alleviate all those sorts of issues. Um, and I don't know if it would be that difficult because we've already got quite strict rules in terms of if you build a new home or you do a home renovation, um, you have to make sure that your toilet's disabled access friendly uh, your light switches have to be low enough to be accessible from a wheelchair to actually enter the home you need to make sure that your entrance doesn't have lots of steps so those things are built into the the regulations and the standards and I think it's almost like it just needs a mindset shift about thinking about how do we get that incorporated um, and, and show people that these things, they're not nice to have. They are fundamentally things that will make the housing stock better quality and make people's lives, um, you know, better so that they can actually more easily move around the home and enjoy that atmosphere within the home. And it could be as simple as incentivizing people to um, look at their own homes and do upgrades in their home homes like the insulation deals that were done to help with energy efficiency. So it could be looking at things like that. Uh, from what you and Chris have said, uh, the, the role for government really is to bring in these legislations so that it forces uh, housing developers um, and anybody involved to set a standard that applies to everybody so that there's more of a, an equitable distribution of technology and that actually as an industry we should be maybe lobbying government to to get involved to make it easier to get that even distribution of the infrastructure that society or community needs. When we think about the suffering of one versus the suffering of many we're quite often you know drawn to making changes when something really bad happens Mm -hmm. and this conversation was centered around Grenfell and what had happened and unfolded there. And I remember talking about it and saying how, you know, it's awful that that kind of thing has happened and we've seen it happen, you know, big tragedies. Um, I have a background in the oil industry, so things like Piper Alpha, and they bring about huge change. And then the same sort of similar with Grenfell, 
a lot of the issues were around the complexity of the system. And I feel like within things like housing and smart homes and in social care, there would be a huge benefit to society for us to take a similar approach. And like I say, it it actually makes me feel so sad that as a society, we're having to go through what we're going through now for us to to now be thinking about these sorts of things more seriously and to take that, you know, that hidden suffering of one because we're in very hard situations before, before all this happened. I feel like it's, now's the time to get it right. And we really need to start thinking about it seriously and bringing in people who have the right expertise to properly analyze what's going wrong. And again, it always goes back to technology is not the answer. It's, it's usually the systems around that technology. And then you're using the technology to help you to implement maybe the new solutions. Um, but you're doing it in a much smarter way. For me, I feel really passionately about it. And I feel that it, it could make such a difference to people to elevate that conversation. Mm. Um, Chris, just kind of on the back of that, and, and a lot of what Caroline was saying is, is that we need to be using this technology and deploying it much more proactively um, than, than, than reactively, because like, like we said, the benefits are obviously clearly there. In terms of how we either incentivize local governments or, uh, you know, not just from a legislation point of view, but actually even potentially deploying this or house builders deploying this, thinking about their social funds. Social care, for example, is a great example of how the cost of social care, you know, we were talking in the UK, especially about the cost of social care and the social care crisis before COVID-19. Um, do you think that there is potentially a, a business or a financial argument for house builders, local governments, uh, residential communities, for example, for the elderly or for, for the vulnerable to say, actually, OK, yes, there is an initial upfront cost to to buy this technology and to deploy it. But actually, you could save so much money by protecting people in their homes and monitoring them. Or do you think that case is being made at the moment, Chris? I think the case has been made probably many times in in past decades you know we've talked about smarter living and healthier living and, and you know and wellness post-war times we've, we've talked about introducing new building methods and you know this is the home of the future and this is you know the workplace of the future so we're not actually introducing new conversations so what what's actually being the sticking point is it the funding is it technology being available, which I think now we're in the golden era where the technology is available, truly is available. Does there, these things need to be sponsored? Do they need to be trialed? Do they need to be building some new towns, new housing estates, new buildings where, you know, they can analyze it and, and get hard evidence, you know, rather than data sheets and tech spec. Let's build the, you know, the, the town of the future, you know, in the, and they did this in the 60s and they've done that in, in, in all over the world where they've built new new towns or new new areas within a town. Because at the moment, I just see this continual, just going back to the way they've always done it, when they you know, build a, an industrial estate or they build a block of apartments or they build you know, a housing development. You just see them using the same old materials, the same methods, the, you know, the same tradespeople. There's no fresh input from people with new ideas you know they have a fear factor of trialing or in implementing new technologies because mainly because of cost if that could be supported or funded in some way by some of the big tech money that's just sloshing around they have just huge amounts of money that they could be subsidizing 
smarter communities. You know, if that means privatization, you know, that's another direction that we could go in. But it's been talked about before. And in, in, in the US, they have, you know, Google uh, infrastructure for your broadband and fiber optic. You know, and, and I've read some articles where there's some crazy ideas coming together where, you know, companies like Nike are going to fund new building in, in, in Oregon. They're going to build a new town and it's, it's going to be Nike town. And, and it's just because of that excess money and profits they have that they're really the only people that, that can fund this new construction and also bring in all the innovation that you'd expect from these big, big giant uh, corporations. I guess as well, it's that tech uh, industry. Um, they're a little bit more comfortable with a sense of failing fast. It's, it's a mm. sort of concept in terms of let's try things out. And if it fails, it fails, but we'll learn something from income and try that next, which may be not applicable to other industries like the housing industry or doing some developments like that. So they're the sort of best place. Since COVID-19 has affected the UK and the world, it's, it's highlighted and exacerbated a lot of issues such as isolation, security, and, and sort of looking after those who are most vulnerable while maintaining social distancing. Is there a responsibility from technology companies and smart technology companies to playing that part in helping communities recover and prepare in the future? Should we face another pandemic? Should they be trialing what we need to do, the new thinking to enable us to prepare in the future? I think they should be active active participants in, in, in introducing new services and technologies for healthcare, for, you know, education for, for for workplace they should be a big participant in it um, you know it always falls on government and you know we get this new refresh of government every three four five six years and they all promise lots and, and woefully under deliver just some of the fundamentals you know you think of just child care you know my sister-in-law is a pediatrician one of my clients I just met this morning works uh, child services for, for NHS and they are deeply, deeply worried about the, the, the mental state of children, the, the physical state of children in, in the lower income households, yet Big Corp is able to apply for, for hundreds of millions of pounds to cover payroll when they're already hundreds of million pound profitable business. And we're, we're talking about propping up airlines, we're talking about propping up potentially banks again. You know, come on, you know, if. The, if the living standard is, is dropping drastically in some communities. We need to address that immediately. If, yeah, exactly. I guess that's that sense of focusing our attentions in the right places um, and, act, and and all of us taking responsibility and helping our local community. I mean, I, I'm hoping that's something that we hold on to after this pandemic. It's one of the good things about what the, what's happened since lockdown is how we're sort of reaching out to our neighbours and looking after people and looking to see how we can help. Caroline, you talk about um, how you think about the people support network around the people that you work with and how you get them engaged in the project as well. Um, could you talk a little bit around the work that you need to do to do that and why it's really, really important to not just think about the end user, but also their their connected network that's working with them? What we'd usually do is um, spend some time to get to know them. Um, we have like a little um, template questionnaire that we work through. So you need to kind of work out where where do they need support? Is it just in the home or not? 
And then in terms of family, um, what we've seen really is really beneficial is things like the voice assistants that have the screens. Um, so showing them how to set that up so that they can phone grandchildren, you know, that are maybe, you know, in America or, you know, halfway across the world. So it's helping to make sure that that's all set up for them. Even things like music playlists, so showing them how they can share music playlists with each other. Shopping lists as well is a really good function. The person in the home can add stuff to the list and then the person outside of the home is really easily able to go and pick up the things that they need. Um, And even things like using that list functionality in clever ways. Like one lady um, had an amazing support network. So she had a friend from the church that would come and um, bring her meals and things. So she would make nice, you know, stews and, and all sorts. And she would put them in the fridge for her to have later. So it would be like setting up reminders to make sure that, you know, she remembered to heat up that food and um, putting it into a list so that her daughter could also just check in and say, oh, I know that um, so-and-so was round today and she dropped off some food for you, you know, and, and she'll say, you know, have you hit, heated it up and had it? it? Was it nice? So it's just understanding more about their daily routine and then finding solutions that just help with that connectivity. It's, it's like we were saying before, it's almost things that, you know, we take for granted because we've grown up with it. But for other people, it just makes a massive difference. All of this technology and even some of the simplest solutions, um, you know, for those people that are using them, they they can genuinely be, I think, life changing just in making the day to day routines and, you know, uh, bits like that, just that bit simpler and taking a lot of the worry and stress and, and um, need to kind of remember everything. One of the biggest barriers for entry for new consumers, though, continues to be privacy, um, especially in the home. And, and I think especially when we're talking about the social responsibility and potentially the, the social action that big corporations are taking, do you think that's only going to sort of increase people's concern or worry about um, essentially big corporation as as government? Um, whilst I, Chris, I'm completely in agreement with you, you know, there's so much money and so much opportunity for good for a lot of these big uh, corporations to have. Um, there then has to be the question of, okay, well, uh, homes being filled with the devices that have been built and paid for by a big corporation. What's what's going to be the trade-off essentially? What's what's in it for the consumer beyond just their social responsibility? Do you, do you, whether or not those those concerns are, are well placed or not? Do you, do you think that that's something that the industry needs to address? The industry needs to be aware of what they're putting into people's homes, rather than just looking at the the margin, the profit, the the kudos of installing all this tech that how responsible have you been and what you've specified, whether it's on the privacy side or, you know, how was this product even manufactured and what conditions were people, you know, working in that even made this this tech that you're putting in. But on a privacy, it's it's so important, but it's so swept under the carpet, you know, in the same way that I open up websites, I just click accept cookies. I don't have a clue what I've accepted. <laughs> I swipe through terms and conditions to get to the, to the app that I need to, to start using or, you know, just just frivolously accept whatever's put in front of me to get that ad out of the way or that pop-up away from my, uh, especially on a smartphone where you've got a small screen and something pops up. We gave up a lot of privacy when we, when we accepted smartphone as the normal communication tool, but we so quickly forget about it and we so quickly accept it when it's providing us with convenience. So that trade-off of 
privacy versus convenience is, is a big one. I also think, though, that there maybe should be some new devices introduced for homeowners, you know, like a black box in your home that you're able to turn on and off to enable privacy or, or disable privacy or add filters in like you have parental filters for content. Well, can I have a privacy filter for my home and enable, you know, private browsing if if it's if needed? Could could your your router from an internet service provider be be smarter? I've always thought that the internet service provider box needs to be more of the smart home hub. It needs to be multilingual. It needs to be a privacy box, um, not just Wi-Fi. It needs to talk Bluetooth and, and Zigbee and Z-Wave. You know, the three major voice assistants that we've we're now living with, we just we just accept we just accept them. And we haven't really questioned them and we've just let them steamroller into our homes. You want to be owning the latest tech. So it's that fear of missing out. So you want to you buy it and, and that's the trade off that you mm. you want to be like everyone else, I guess. I think um from our perspective, we see a lot of people worry about it. So there's a lot of worry and concern. And I think there's a big step change between people's perceptions and smartphones and what they do online on their computers. And, you know, they don't really see that as their personal data, you know, as they're browsing. I don't think they realize what they're giving away. And then it gets much more emotive when you start to talk about voice. And then when you start to talk about videos, everyone's like, no, I don't want cameras in my house. It's not happening. Um, so we generally don't use cameras. If we are going to use anything, we might use the infrared motion detectors. And then you're trying to explain about the, the trade-off. So for you to get access to the technology, yes, you are giving away some of your data, but you, it's not completely out with your control. So we did a really good session online this week on security where we took our um, viewers through the system and we showed them this is how you go in and you check what's been recorded. This is how you delete stuff. We did some of the basics around smart home security. So basics like passwords. Again, it, you know, it comes down to education and there will be a mindset shift Um but it will take time and we've seen it happen before with other technologies and the adoption of them. So it, it will come that people start to become more comfortable with them. But certainly, you know, we hear it a lot from people and um, absolutely respect people who, who don't want these sorts of technologies in their homes because it isn't right for everyone and you have to be comfortable with your choices. I don't see a great deal of fear actually from, from consumers. Um, you haven't seen I, my Facebook messages, <laughs> no, have you? No, I don't. We get a lot on Facebook. Yeah, I, I, I know there, there are people that do have a fear about it, but they're also the same people that are happy to give their kids a phone because they don't want to be the only kid in the playground without, without an Apple Watch or an iPhone. You know, you're being super responsible on one hand and then not really giving a damn on the other. It's I don't know. I think it's more of a, a fear of the unknown. I think it's because you know it, it, it's your voice, it's it's your face. You know, it's it just elevates it so much more, and it's much more personal than you typing something or a mouse moving. It, there is actually a big difference, I think, for people in the way that they feel about it. When the convenience is put in front of them, it it kind of dilutes the. the the security fears in a lot of cases? I think it's that, yeah, it's that connection with certain groups in terms of it is much more motive and does feel much more personal versus obviously typing and doing things that you're 
you're comfortable with. And I guess it's also demographic. We do find that different generations, depending on how much they've grown up with the technology, have a different perspective on privacy. Uh, One of the interesting bits of research that came out earlier this year was that people born after 2000 are much more concerned or think about data privacy but it's because they understand the value of their data. So need to get that trade off with whatever company is asking for their data to make sure that value is good. So they tend to be more active because they understand that their data is being taken and they have that knowledge. Then I guess the middle of us sort of kind of understand that our knowledge is being used and don't care in that trade-off with convenience. And then anybody else who's not really grown up with this technology and it's very, very new to them, it's only come in the last decade of their life, like you say, Caroline, have a lot, it's that fear of the unknown. Um, And that's, again, it's this education piece that we've talked to, we've both talked of consistently throughout this uh, episode. I think that's the first step of, of responsibility for the industry is starting to look at how do we implement things? How do we educate everybody and make sure we're bringing everybody, all of the community along with us? Are we going to be reactive though? Are we still waiting for the first big privacy threat that mm. exposes you know, thousands of people that they're watching porn or thousands of people that are up to no good financially or is it going to expose passwords for something but there hasn't been this threat that's loomed over us you know are we just waiting for that reactive moment and then we'll review our uh, our, you know government will get involved and clamp down on big tech you know at the moment they're getting to do what they like well there is some there's some research funding um calls out for proposal at the moment um, looking specifically at IoT and security um, you know to help people within the home to understand if they if there has been an attack and maybe someone has gotten into their network um, how, how are you going to know about that otherwise I mean there isn't any tech at the moment that helps the consumer. So just talking obviously about privacy and, and data and, and how crucial data is both in terms of what the consumer gets out of um, and also talking about machine learning um, and artificial intelligence, how we might use that in, in the future. Um, there's also the question, I suppose, of, of data overload in, in terms of making sure that the data that we do have access to, we're making the most of, um, which I imagine is particularly important in a, in a sort of social care and a, and a healthcare context. Yeah, no, you're absolutely Absolutely right. Um, our homes are growing. We're adopting more devices into our homes that could potentially be used to help um, support care in the future. And all those sensors, they're, they're potential data points. And those data points can add up to the point where you have um, so much information that you're not really sure what it means. And I, th- I guess it's important to understand, well, why are you collecting that data? And is that data going to be used to um, automate something? Is it being used to monitor something so that you have an understanding of trends that are happening within the home? Um, and unless you do that, you can't really use the data. So I think in today's smart homes, they're turning out loads of data. And yeah, you can go into your smartphone and you can look at all the trends and stuff and you're like, yeah, what, what does that mean? I have no idea what that means. So I think it's important that we, we consider that and particularly from a care point of view. So I have a background in industrial process control. So as I said before, I'm a chemical engineer by background. And you know, a lot of my role is, is running big 
process plans. So we look at data points. So things like pressures and temperatures and uh, all sorts of interesting <laughs> sensors and instrumentation. And what we use in an industrial setting is actually like a hierarchical system. So rather than you being overloaded with all of this data and not really knowing which things relate to safety, which ones relate to product quality, which ones are really important that the operator needs to deal with right now, or the ones that actually they can deal with in a week's time or two weeks time. As an engineer, like that, that's something that I think we could kind of take that cross learning into smart homes and start to look a lot more intelligently at the data and how that data is shared so it's meaningful and that and again from privacy that's actually really important because we're not actually sharing the raw data anymore we're sharing the analytics output so it can depersonalize some of the stuff that maybe people are really concerned about so you're looking at the trends in the data rather than individual data points so you can say that something's gotten worse or something's gotten better rather than a specific piece of data that would be personally identifiable and I think that could be really really powerful moving forward. You know data collection is you know who's using it what's it being used for but I'm also seeing customers get a bit of fatigue so the, the they're getting tired of using their smartphone and tablet so voice is a timely introduction, but then that introduces another, you know, collection of data and, and privacy. You know, it's keep that trade-off keeps having to be balanced of convenience versus privacy and data. Then, you know, okay, so you're getting fed up with all these notifications from your home on your phone. So maybe a different touch screen is is better used. And that's why I'm a fan of some of these Google, Amazon touch screens that you're not getting all the alerts like text messages, WhatsApp, phone calls, emails. You're just seeing home information like somebody's at the front door, um, you know, water leak detected in the utility room, um, you know, and you, you're only interacting with it for brightness of light, a change of scene, raising a blind, getting a status on something, is the door open or shut? So those are alleviating some of that that screen fatigue, although it's using a touch screen again, you're just using them for, for connected home services and maybe asking for weather and trying, I try to encourage customers to, to not be reliant on the, the smartphone and tablet to drive the smart home, try and use the voice assistant or the, or the touch screen that's dedicated to the system, whether it's a, a professionally installed system, like a control four savant, a Crestron type system, which is the pinnacle of smart home and then those professional systems also seem to be a lot more disconnected from from the cloud and the privacy concerns and the, the mining of data they're using more local controls and you've got a, a processor in your house that's that's dealing with the uh, control of all the services do you know very interestingly um talking about notification fatigue i guess you know for want of a better word and, and that not being able to access crucial sort of bits of information that actually do matter um for me since it was introduced um on my on my phone um apple's screen time um feature has been a revelation and an absolute horror um, and i was just looking um, while you were just talking about um you know some of my statistics and and like i receive like on average 224 notifications a day um and i pick up you know pick up my phone 85 times a day on average that's insane especially you know if i'm also then adding to, to into the mix things like sensors and you know crucial 
um, you know, things that are potentially detecting, you know, things like leaks, or for example, if I'm, if I'm helping to monitor a family member, um, and, you know, if, if, for example, in another home, a sensor hasn't picked up that they're, uh, you know, they've, they've no motion detected, for example, for that morning, that's going to get completely lost. Um, it's overwhelming. Yeah, it, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course it's become the kind of the new normal. Um, I'm of an age where I, I grew up with, you know, a smartphone really for most of my teenage years. And I've, it's, I, you know, I've, I suppose I've just become used to it. But also, as we do look at using technology for more, more of our lifestyle, um, you know, and in terms of helping our lifestyle and in the community in particular as well, we've got to make sure that these systems can cut through the, the noise, I suppose. And I guess this just speaks to what you two have both been saying throughout this uh, episode there's a job to be done in creating the processes and the infrastructure that sits around the technology to really deliver true value to a community. Well, it's been fantastic talking to you both. I think we've covered every topic under the sun. I could talk to you guys for hours. It's been brilliant. Thank Thank you you so much for being part of our podcast. Um, It's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful talk around what we can do and help the community. Thank you. Cheers. And a huge thank you to both Caroline and Chris for joining us on today's episode. If you want to know more, feel free to email us at hello at beaconagency.co.uk and we look forward to welcoming you back for episode three coming next week.